You're listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance, enliven, and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. My guest this week was Chris Susie. Chris, I can't, I just realized I can't say what's going on with his play right now because we haven't made the formal announcement as of this moment, and I don't think we will by the time this episode comes out. So let me revise my intro. <clears throat> Chris, uh, Chris's play, Good Morning, made it to the top 10 of our playwriting competition. He also had a second play that also made it to the top 10. He is the first playwright we have had with two plays placing in the top 10 of our competition. And that really says something because there are over 200 submissions for full-length plays. So for Chris to have two was really astonishing um, and, and really saying something. And I guess what was more remarkable is that he hadn't submitted anything to our first playwriting competition, so I didn't know who he was. And I say, when you have 200-plus submissions, you're not going to know who a lot of people are. But just that there's two really strong pieces that came out, and I was like, God damn, who is this guy? And then he started sending stuff into the blog, and um, he had great poetry that we've been publishing on the blog. And I was like, this guy's an animal. I was like, who is he and what's going on with him and all that? And uh, so, and there will probably be other announcements about Chris and his work <clears throat> in the dangerously near future. I don't know. I can't talk about it right now. I'm, I'm trying to. I keep trying to think if I'm going to be able to, if we're going to have the announcement formally made before this episode. But anyway, um, yeah, barring something catastrophic, <laughs> uh, you'll be hearing about Chris and his work more and more in the future. Anyway, um, it was great to get Chris on. Really interesting um, backstory on him. His military service is interesting. His artistic journey is interesting. And where it's all happened is also interesting. How much he's simply not been limited by not being in New York or LA, but and actually thrived um, not being there and created so many cool opportunities. And he's got a very educated, um, experienced perspective on writing. I think in my current role as artistic director at Vet Rep, I really appreciate his producer mindset when it comes to writing, that he's constantly thinking about the producibility of his work. Um, I, I just, I think he's, it's a really smart, savvy approach um, that he takes to his work and, and the emotional detachment that he achieves. I mean, obviously I think any writer cares a lot about their work, but that he achieves an emotional detachment enough to be able to edit, submit, conform his piece to the para, to the parameters of whatever the medium or whatever the production requires. That's really something. 
That's that's something that's very rare. So I think it's a fascinating interview. I really enjoyed talking to him. Um, full disclosure, I had the door kick in. Uh, I recorded this at my house, and we had a whole bunch of stuff happen. So at the end of the episode, I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to have to wrap this up really quick because yeah, we got people flooding in and things happening and all that. But I don't think it'll detract from your overall enjoyment of the episode. Um, I'm Christopher Paul Myers. I said I'm the artistic director of Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is the Savage Wonder of Chris Susie. Welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thank you very much. I noticed we're both in front of stark white walls, except mine. <laughs> Like my head is perfectly framed. I was about to say, you've got that nice saint look, your Renaissance painting happening there. I'm like, oh, right, yeah. This is why I never do shows from home, except today I've got a sick kid. So now I'm doing this here. But now, yeah, I'm going to go through this whole show looking at a fucking halo on my head. It looks ridiculous. Um, anyway, sorry, I had to get that out of the way. That's okay. Well, uh, I'm just now noticing that my, my computer screen creates like a glowing eye effect in my glasses. So I it, look. That's awesome. All right. Preternatural well, of some see, type. These are the reasons why we don't do it. We, we have a YouTube channel that we have never used. And this is why. Because every go. single time I'm like, we're not ready for that. We, we, no, we can't not, handle not, it. We can't not, handle not video. Just yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, dude, it's uh, it's great to have you on, man. Uh, yeah. This is, um, you know, you and I talked when I told you about, you know, how your plays did in the competition and everything. So I feel like I got a bit of a spoiler on you but i want to i want to recapture some of that feeling for everybody here um because it was like you were this mythical creature that had just emerged from the woods and i was like who the fuck is this dude like where are these fucking plays coming from like each one was uh, was so strong and so unique um so i guess let's just start with this that was praise that never amounted to a question but let me start with uh, with with this when did you start writing? When did you first get the interest in it? When did you first start applying yourself in any real way as a writer? So that is an excellent question. Um, I originally wanted to be a visual artist. I, I originally wanted to be a painter, uh, a sculptor. Actually, sculpture was was really big in my youth. Like um, I was introduced to sculpting when I was like 11 years old. Um, my father was military. So we lived all over the, the world and we were living in Italy at the time. And so, you know, going to see the master, seeing Michelangelo, uh, my teacher really was big on on getting out and into the museums. And so I really felt that art, uh, visual art was the way that I, it would all pan out. Um, and there were certain aspects of visual art that were uh, that felt very limiting in what I was trying to to, to tell people. I, I, I was I would always like stand next to my art and just like explain every little bit do you see this part where the person is here do you do you understand what's happening here and uh what i what i basically learned was i i wanted to to tell whole stories and i think that good art tells whole stories when you when you're standing in front of a painting and you're just feeling all of this emotion coming off of the painting you're getting a whole story um but i wasn't a good enough artist to you know in that medium i wasn't I, I didn't feel that I was expressing well. So um, I started moving into uh, storytelling in, in in a more traditional sense, writing little short stories. Um, and 
my main issue with writing like short stories was I was I was aimless, I was directionless. Uh. I just like put so much into into it that it it, it wasn't telling a story. Um, and I had a wonderful teacher who who just said, you know, you're a great writer, but you don't have any focus. Mm. You should try poetry because poetry condenses everything. You have to sure. you have to squeeze it into sure. form. Um, so you take these big ideas and you try to put it in the least amount of right. words or into a rhythmic pattern or into a rhyming pattern or into, you know, because there are no rules for poetry. You can, you can do that, but it has a function form that you can't really escape. So poetry started really cropping up as a way to express feelings, emotions, ideas. And, and, and it became kind of essential to my growth as a writer because I, I consider dialogue poetry. Uh, dialogue is condensing lots of thoughts because when we speak, we sure. don't iterate everything in our head. We 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 finite, and the closer we are to a person, the, the more a person knows us, the less we have to say because they understand us. They understand our right. shorthand. They understand you know they 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 share that you know understanding of us. So so whenever I talk to people about writing and writing scripts and writing shows and things like that, I say you should try poetry to help you trim your dialogue um because the difference between in my estimation with script writing and like prose story writing is the extent of words you use how many yeah. words you yeah. use in prose versus in in dialogue and in script and and so i liken dialogue to poetry and so the steps were i went from writing poetry uh, uh living in a world of, of poetry to scripts and because i've always been a theater kid like uh, forever um and then that became writing plays uh then i went into writing screenplays um and only like in the last i don't know four or five years have i really sat down to think about writing short stories like fully about mm -hmm. you know uh which is a big I, I what you learn too is uh script writers and poets terrible grammar we have, you know, mm -hmm. punctuation, yeah. you know, uh, because I'm so far away from when we learn punctuation and things like that, because they don't exist in the same world. You know, where, where, where we, it, does the quotation end in a, in a comma? Yeah. That was a statement. That person obviously made a statement, but I'm going to put a comma so I can say that he said that. And I'm like, right. what? Uh, because period, periods outside question, outside quotation marks. Periods outside like, of quotation well, marks. Hey, there was well, other, there was other text there too. So right. I should, it really makes more sense to go on the outside. Yeah. And the quotation the mark was, was, was to create or, or parentheses too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. where does the period go? No, it goes inside the parentheses, but yeah. the, then that seems like that's all part of the parentheses. Where's the sentence? I don't know. So yeah, uh, I, I, I got some rude awakenings because I've been a professional writer for ages, but right. I'm writing scripts and i'm writing dialogue um and and you don't really have a lot of that yeah issue yeah. at least you know uh so yeah i want i uh, want to i want to oh, yeah. dive in sorry i, I just wanted to uh, there's a ton i want to mine probably for the rest of the show based off everything you just said but i think the first thing that pops out to me is the dialogue because now um <laughs> we're going back over our files this year i was like i've read I think it's 800 plays, 10 minute and full length this oh, year. My Lord. Yeah. I mean, now that's because we did it to ourselves because we had two 
or two iterations of the competition. So it was just a lot of submissions. I, I had but, noted that, and I was I, I I somewhere I was confused in that whole thing. Yeah, no, it it was it was nuts. We're never doing that again. Like I'm doing year long competitions now. I'm like six month long competitions is just too fast. Um, to turn all that around. Um, but the biggest, I mean, the easiest way to cut plays because obviously when you start reading that volume you're going just give me a reason to move on to the next play right and it's like the easiest way and and you hate to say that because you want to be especially when you know i'm not your average nonprofit theater like i'm trying to do it for a cause so i'm like hey i want to be encouraging to veteran writers and really give them the full benefit of the doubt but at a certain point your brain is mush your eyes are blurry and you're like sure okay dude you you've you've now cross the, the the river sticks and there's no coming back from this and I got to move on to the next thing and you start to look forward to those moments but I think the easiest way to immediately invalidate a play and I'm saying this because if it's true for me I'm sure it's true for a lot of people that are literary managers and dramaturgs and all that at theaters everybody's submitting to is dialogue you know the second you read just fucking horrible dialogue or exposition heavy dialogue you're just going that's it Got it. I don't care how fucking awesome the premise is. And a lot of the premises are really awesome. Right. And that, you know, a lot of them you're like, oh, what a great fucking idea. But the the second it starts, the character opens their mouth and you're like, yep, done. I'm not, I I can't live with this. I got to move on. And that I think just to the first blush, you made it right past that round because of that attention to dialogue. And because, and I want to ask you a little bit about that. I've never thought of dialogue as poetry. I think that's a really interesting way of going about it. How much do you focus on the dialogue? Are you the kind of person that needs to hear the characters in your head to get them down on on the page? Are you the kind of person that's constantly eavesdropping on people to pick up rhythm and speech? Like, what's your process? Where's where do you where do you find your dialogue inspiration? So one of the things that truly gets in the way of writing is thinking. Thinking is one of those things that that causes people to pain over every word, and 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 it slows down the process. Um, so uh, I adopted a long time ago this concept of uh, eavesdropping. I am eavesdropping on characters. I am not responsible for what they say, uh, and so it's 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 in a lot of ways. And and I, I'll tell anybody who who's interested in writing that, you know, go take an improv class, uh, go, you know, uh, take some acting classes, take some, some improv classes. Uh, improv is, is, is one of the great tools. I actually run an improv theater company here in Savannah. And what we, what we really push is to come become naturalistic about presenting ideas when they come into your head, you know, don't overthink it because when you overthink it, you start to create an artifice. The artifice is made because you are thinking about what you're trying to say instead of saying it. So, you know, it's 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 removing the filter. So when I write, uh, I I do it in this very voyeuristic brain. You know, I'm I'm uh, in my mind, I'm sitting in the room listening to these people go on. And and one of the beauty of that particular process is I get surprised a lot, you know, because I am. I am just letting the banter go back and forth. And then yeah. suddenly something is revealed and I'm like, well, oh, and, and that is to me one of the rewarding 
uh, pieces of the writing process is being surprised by your own work because you're letting it go. You're you're not uh-huh. you're not corralling it. You know, uh, and and of course, this is my personal process. I know that other people have other processes and they work perfectly fine for them. And, and, you know, I would never suggest there's a right way to do it. But the way I do it is uh, is sort of a free for all. You know, um, both the scripts that I entered, I tend to consider my lesser scripts in a lot of ways Mm. (laughs) Uh, because I'm still tinkering with the others. You know, I'm still wrestling with them. But those I felt had made it to a place where I was ready to to let them go, which again, knowing when to let it go is a big, mm, is a sure. big part of the, of the process. Uh, but what, what is intriguing to me is uh, I have always been a very fast writer. That is basically my, my bread and butter is I've had people contact me or, or ask me to get something produced quickly and so I can do that. And the way I do that is, is I alleviate myself of the responsibility of creation uh, by, um, by assuming this sort of, it's, it's, it's like an acting exercise in my brain, person A and person B. Uh, and I try to model them after people I know so that I have a sense of rhythm and, and pace and what would they say and things like that. And I very rarely find myself stuck because their interaction is, oh, and that's another thing about dialogue, by the way, make sure that it, it's connective, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people will throw non sequitur things in. And if it's not, if it's not connected to the last thing said, oftentimes mm-hmm. it's a trip in the brain. It's a trip in mm-hmm. the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you can make that up in performance In performance non sequiturs right. can become this, but to the reader, who is trying to follow along and, and follow a, a dialogue system, uh, try to make it as connective as possible, make it responsive, make sure that these characters are responding to each other or to the environment or to something that's happening uh, so that you're not filling it with non sequiturs. The occasional non sequitur really sure. lands really sure. well, but know that, because uh, I think that that some people are trying to up the ante by, by putting yeah. a lot of non sequiturs in or... Or or travel down the road of absurdity, you know, right. and and, right. and it's like what what a lot of people don't know about absurdity. Uh, in my estimation, again, <laughs> I try to always suggest that these are just my thoughts. I, I I'm not I'm not a claiming authority on this stuff, but I do notice that when people do absurdity, they they kind of forget that the whole absurdist movement was in reaction to something. It was in reaction to a solid and rigid form, and so the absurdity was in fact. A conversation back and forth for in a cultural way so uh so it did in weird and very bizarre way make perfect sense for the period so if you're going to do something absurd make sure that you're saying something with your absurdity make sure that the absurdity yeah. Yeah. is is not for the sake of being absurd uh it, it is a, it is a shaking up of the cognitive you know process of uh you know yeah. the reason why you know um why Beckett is a yeah. genius is because you know he was he went through World War II and he had you know all of this weight on his shoulders and he had a world that was falling apart because they were clinging to something too rigid and so he created this amazing departure from the yeah. rigid yeah uh, and so today when we do absurdity it's like you know it's been done you know yeah <laughs> so, you know, so what, what are you pushing back against what, right. what, what are, are you pushing yeah. back against yeah. Yeah. You know, because I think that that that's what theater art should be is statements, you know, um, 
it's it's fascinating to think about uh, when you when it, because as you get into that like community theater mindset of what's going to sell tickets, what's going to bring people in, right. you know, right. am I am I you know uh, am I a crowd pleaser? Yeah. Or am I an advocate for something specific? And what I've I've often found is a lot of community theaters do their anchor shows to, you know, to to mm-hmm. to fulfill the audience, but then they'll sneak in these subversive pieces right. to right. you know to be artistically expressive. So yeah. um so I my advice as far as, as writers go for for all of that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is, is to know that uh we when we create dialogue, it has to satisfy the 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 audience, the reader, the audience. And and when you when you abandon the idea of satisfying a reader or eyes, because you know, yeah, you should absolutely satisfy yourself. But keep in mind that you are the first audience of anything you write. Yeah. You yeah. are the first person to consume it when you're writing it. And if you are slogging through maybe you're not enjoying it you know yeah. if it is this if, it, if there's all this blockage and all this this angst over 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 creation it's like maybe it's it, you need to give yourself a break you know maybe you need to yeah. lighten so, up so what i wonder with your approach to dialogue and i think that's I, that's an approach i can empathize and relate to where you're eavesdropping on the characters getting surprised by their dialogue the conundrum that I can see as a very real possibility and that I've experienced in my own work is that then the plot gets out of hand ah. and you go, Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so how do you straddle that? Do you, how rigid are you to your plot? Do you plot ahead of time? So you have some left and right guardrails. What do so, you do? That's an excellent question because, and, and here's, mm. here's the Chris Susie method. <laughs> of, of, of writing um, or, or the metaphor I use. The metaphor I use is every story you tell, whether it's going to be a novel or a um, a, uh, a play or a screenplay, whatever, uh, think of it as a tree. And the plot is the trunk. You can have as many branches as you want, but they have to connect to the trunk or they're not going to be a part of the tree. You know, you can't just have a branch hanging in the sky, not connected to your tree. And these things become even more interesting because sometimes when you look at an old gnarly tree, it takes a huge bend. You know, there is, the trunk itself will bend possibly to the weight of a large branch that comes off of it. And you can honor that because you had this plot. So I do normally know from the get-go from the moment I conceive of something, I understand it's it's trunk. I understand the tree itself. Is that the, the first step for you? Is that is the trunk the, the first piece or yeah, is it, you, you know what's interesting? Starts? Uh, <clears throat> inspiration comes in all forms and it's usually condensed into a moment that I really want to see. Mm. You know, a, 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 a moment that really drives me because I, I could come up with ideas all day long, but it isn't until I have a moment that I want to build a show around. Uh, I want to build a story around, you know, that moment when somebody is doing something that I'm like, well, what's that scene? 
And is it at the beginning or is it at the end? Do I build into the scene or do I, you know, build away from the scene? Mm. Um, and that becomes this kind of thing. Uh, uh, the, one of the plays that I had entered was called Good Morning. And Good Morning was was predicated on this idea that there are such things as professional mourners in the world. Mm. That uh, and and it's it's apparently very popular in cultures that are highly repressed, like the Asian cultures. Um, and my mother had told me about this. My mother's Korean and told me that you would sometimes hire a person so that the family can remain that stoic, you know, cultural presence while someone else is just wailing at the top of their lungs. And, you know, and they'll have like a little badge and they'll sit, you know, they'll have a, a place of honor and they'll just cry just mercilessly loud and, and wail because the society itself doesn't really condone that kind of show of emotion or that kind of level sure. of, uh, of emotional. Uh, and so, you know, professional mourners, if you're really good at wailing, you get that. And I was like, that is such a fascinating thing because we live in societies that shun emotion. We live in a society that, that, that asks us to, to swallow so much crap and, and, and behave and, 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 you know, and still show up to work. The next day and still, you know, and, and, and it, it, it boggles my mind that we don't have, you know, just, well, I guess we do. <laughs> I guess we do have just massive amounts of, of mental strain and mental, you know, uh, pains that aren't addressed because even the act of looking for help has been uh, regarded as weakness or uh, or uh, the inability to sort your stuff out and you see that you see so many very strong people being crushed by the burden of the expectations that have been placed on them so uh you know so the moment of course was what happens when a a mourner shows up a professional mourner shows up but no one expected them to you know, what does that look like? And that was, you know, the, that, that one moment was, I would love to see that. I would love to see the conversation of a, of a family that has not been trained, has not been told, yeah. don't show your emotions. But I think we do. We do show up to funerals very somber and very quiet. And, you know, we, we, we do, you know, uh, unless you're in New Orleans, you know, unless, right. unless you've got a, a right. ragtime band playing, which is awesome, which is the way it should be. It should be huge celebrations and huge wailings, you know, it should yeah. be these things. So, um, so yeah, that's, once, it, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I did not pick up on the, on, on so many colors that you just brought up there. Um, yeah, cause I could, I, I mean, I would say the two things that immediately come to my mind are, I think we are maybe more expressive than most cultures although i think in general you're right there's a human bias i think towards not completely unleashing there and then for my mind i was like and then the question becomes how much is there nobility in a stiff upper lip or is there a nobility in complete you know ripping open your veins and and what is the right answer there and then um, or is the right answer the happy medium, which is I think what most people try to go for. But it's it, but it becomes a different discussion. But it's interesting all the stuff that's brought up from the interjection of such an artificial element like a professional mourner, right? 
and well, it's great. And that's just, yeah, that's great. Yeah, the the wonder point. of it, and 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 uh, you know, another writing tip is the audience doesn't have to get all of the pieces of fuel that you put into a thing. They yeah. just have to get the movement of it. You know, they just need to get that it works. You know, um, you never have to expose. Like, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't have the 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 sensation of writing out the whys of every moment right. or anything, right. because one of the one of the joys of writing is when somebody reads it and gets something that you either didn't intend yeah. or didn't realize was yeah. even there. And they're yeah. like, oh, this is like that, and you're like, oh yeah, I guess it is. You know? <laughs> but I, that was not my my original yeah. intention. Um, but a lot of times when you put a bunch of ingredients into a pot. It'll come out tasting like another dish. You know, it'll come out tasting totally. like something. Yeah, and people will be like, "Oh, this reminds me of X, Y, and Z," and uh, and that's the letting go part of of writing. Is once you've written it and you, you and you've sent it to the next person, they get to own yeah. their feelings about it. They don't get to own the piece, which mm-hmm. is a totally different argument to have. Sure, <laughs> a, a sure, sure, discussion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, people, uh, fans who, who, who were like, this, this is yeah. mine and, and you can't have it. Right. Um, right. But it is absolutely their experience and, 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 and what it means to them, uh, is, is theirs and, and can't be taken away by no matter, you know, no matter how much you were like, well, that wasn't my intent. I was like, well, you know what? That's right. fine that it wasn't your intent. It was their reception. Right. Right. So you can leave that to them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by that process of the process of creating through to uh, creation. Um, and, and why I started writing short stories was I realized that there, it, it's a more, <laughs> it's a more streamlined way to get to the audience because I don't think a lot of people realize how many, how many stages between like a playwright and yeah. a producer yeah. play how many hands, how many visions, how many, you know, every actor yeah. has their responsibility to bring something of themselves into it. And that is, you know, and it's a beautiful communal experience. Right. And, um, and oftentimes the writer is, is the platform in which they stand. Uh, the director is responsible for what it looks like. And the actors are responsible for emoting and all of these things come into this wonderfully, amazingly put together piece. Um, but if you want to, you want to have more direct conversation with the audience you know outside of being a monologue artist right right. writing a story you know so that they it's like well these are my words and that's their brain that is the connection it's me and them not me to producer to director to actor right to scenic designer to lighting designer to uh, and then to the audience are you a control freak do you Absolutely. like to have uh, uh, <laughs> I, and, and I said because because I mean by by being a playwright, I think it's difficult to be a control freak. It's such a collaborative process. It is absolutely at, at a certain process. point. But I mean we, talk about just what itches that scratches and and what and, and do you feel do you feel like short story writing is more fulfilling for you because it's only your vision. All the burden rests on you. I think it's more about diversity, variety of sensation. You know, uh, because I think in the end, I'm what I crave is a conversation. Mm. You know, what I crave is a is, is, is well, I guess it's intimacy. It's not control. It's knowing that uh, it, I'm having a direct conversation. Uh, and with I, an audience, you mean with, with, with an with, audience, with okay. the audience, yeah. yes. Okay. And 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 that becomes this interesting thing because I absolutely adore the theater and I love 
I love being a part of that process, anywhere in the process. You know, you can put me anywhere on a stage, backstage, on stage, you know, uh, in the booth, you know, wherever. And I am, I am overjoyed to be a part of that process and to be a part of that community. But I always look at that as familial. You know, it's a it's a familial process. We are a family, and 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 these things. And but what happens is, I then sometimes crave to just be me. You know, yeah. uh, how how am I just me? And and that's where writing short stories came in. It wasn't because it, it, I, I I'm absolutely not a control freak in that in that mindset uh, because I don't think of anything as precious. And that's because um, I wrote for a lot of film producers. And uh, if you want to get you know beat down as a writer, write for a bunch of people who are who are looking at a bottom line more than a creative endeavor. And you'll you'll suddenly realize that nothing you write is precious. You know, it's it's yeah. it's, it's 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 really a matter of, in that work realm. Right. It's right. really a matter of what can sell and what gets them you know to the next stage and next level uh, because it's a lot of high stakes. Uh, and, you know, I, I never work with like huge producers or, or directors. I always work with these like, you know, just at B, if not below B <laughs> level filmmakers. Um, but, you know, it was paychecks and I was very happy to have it. And I was happy to work with these people. I was happy to to create. But that became very, uh, very much an, a, a lesson of, oh, you know, do I have stories to tell myself? Or am I telling stories for other people? Sure. And that's kind of the branching into, because I do, a, a, you know, I did a lot of theater. A lot of theater that I produced and written was because I had to. I worked for a municipal arts organization, a city art run theater program. And it was like, we don't have money. So we can't get royalties and we can't, you know, we don't have costumes. We can't do these things. I'll just write a show. You know, I'll just write a show and yeah. it'll be just something that we would get up and we get up because... According to, you know, our, uh, you know, uh, our office procedures, we need to have 11 shows this year and we only have a budget for like four. So the other shows will be, you know, these, you know, uh, I'll take public domain and literary things and I'll turn them into children's shows and we'll, we'll tour them to schools and things like that. So, so for a long time, I'm, I was a writer of necessity uh, and, 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 you know, almost everything I've ever done was what fell into my lap, you know, what came into my path. Um, I never sought out any of this, to be honest. I I never like thought, well, this is the path. This is where I'm going to go with my life. It was, oh, we need a script or, oh, we need a director. Oh, you know, hey, you love theater. Why why don't you help us do this? And why don't you help us do that? And all of a sudden I had what passes as a career. You know, (laughs) I was, I was, I was piecemealing, uh, artistic endeavor after artistic endeavor and very satisfied. You know, I was never like, Oh, I wish I was in Hollywood or, Oh, I wish I was, I was this huge success because success to me is, is weighed in satisfaction. How satisfied yeah. am I with any given work? Yeah. Um, and, uh, my sister also a, um, an arts matron. She, uh, she ran theater companies and, and mm. worked with every arts organization in town. Uh, she was once asked, what's your favorite show? And her answer was the one I'm working on. Yeah. It's always going to be the one I'm working on. And I was like, what a perfect answer because it, it, it encapsulizes what it is to be a a working living theater artist. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Because it doesn't do us well to dwell on, on the, uh, the golden 
productions, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the idea of the perfect show or the, oh, I wish I could do this show. It's like, no, get the show done, be working, be on the show and be invested in that show, in the show that you're working on. Um, and that was, you know, such a great way to to develop because you're not thinking, God, I wish I was doing something more right. X, Y, or right. Z. Yeah. It's like, no, you you are happy to do the work that is right in front of you. I think I, I think I've delayed the inevitable for long enough. I think we <laughs> got to establish the timeline and 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 follow your journey from inception. Your dad being career army. Did you, it seems like you, because since you and your sister both end up in the arts, I imagine that you had a very arts friendly household in some way. So right? this is something that I don't think people know about uh, army brats or, or, or military kids. We are exposed to the, the cultures and the environments that, that they bring us to. Sure. They, the, the DOD kids programs were top notch, at least when I was a kid. Um, we lived in Germany. Uh, for five years, and we went everywhere. You know, we spent so little time in the classroom. We were always out at museums, at castles, at history sites. We went to Dachau when I was seven years old. Wow! And I was like, that wow. is not something that you should do to a kid. But, <laughs> but I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing because it 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 enriched us. And if there was any arts to be had, um, the military kind of put it in front of us. You know, and so growing up, we saw a lot of theater. There was always a base, a, a post theater, you know, uh, soldiers getting together and putting on shows for the love of it, you know, yeah. because it's not like they have time. You know, it's not like when you're in the military, you, right. you've got a lot of free time. So it was it was always amazing. Um, and of course, when I was in high school, I, I, I actually performed at the post theater. I was, you know, I, I did everything I could to be involved. Um we lived in Italy, living in Italy. It was all about, you know, the Renaissance arts and the amazing architecture. And um, I got to study at the Commedia dell'Arte Theater. Did you really? Yeah, wow. in Vicenza, Italy. We we were stationed in Vicenza. Sure. And that is the home of the Olympic Theater, which was the the birthplace of, of Commedia. Yeah. So we got to go on and they had these crazy like pendulum sets that were like full wood that just like swung in and out and wearing masks. And, you know... We were so exposed to art that it, was, it would seem impossible not to have it be a part of our our lives. It was it was so um, amazing how dedicated to arts they were. Uh, and then, of course, as you're nearing the end of your like high school career, it's all like, well, you know, what are you going to do for a living? Well, I want to be an actor. No, you don't. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> you know, right. uh, sure. All of a sudden, all of those things that they were they were really promoting seemed far-fetched and dreams and it's like that's weird why is this more of an intangible dream than than becoming a doctor or becoming a lawyer like like chasing down those dreams which are also lofty and difficult right. and hard uh but so is art you know yeah. but in 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 the state of art they're like that's not legitimate you know that's just not a legitimate thing so i joined the army to pay for college did you join uh, right out of high school? Right. Well, yeah, I actually joined early. I was like 17. Wow. And, I joined, wow. yeah. uh, and I graduated 17. So it was very odd because um, my dad was against it. <laughs> but but he was in Korea at the time. 
uh, he was doing a, a hardship tour in Korea. Sure. And he, sure. he was like, I don't think you understand. This is not for you. You know, this is, you know, I, I, I've known you your whole life, son. This uh, isn't, this isn't for you. And he was trying to spare me his experiences because he, this is what he wanted. My dad, yeah. you know, there are pictures of him at, you know, 10 years old in his little army suit. And, and he always wanted to marry a, a, a Japanese bride. Like that was his childhood dream was to join the army and marry a Japanese woman. And he married a Korean woman. So my mom was always like, well, you, you upgraded, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it was interesting because that was his dream and he achieved it. And it was like this this very, yeah. you know, uh, interesting uh, thing because uh, these were the, the these tangible dreams, these low hanging dreams. And so when I joined the army, I was like, I'm just doing it to go to college. Well, uh, little did just, I know. Who were you, though, at that point? Would did he see you as a theater kid? What did he, what did he think kid. you should be? OK, I was a theater kid. And. And that was another thing. A lot of people think that, you know, my dad was a command sergeant major and people imagined that um, it was like the great Santini, you know, it, like, right. you know, my house was, you know, dust you know, inspections and, <laughs> and, and my father would come home bellowing and my dad was a huge teddy bear. You know, he was just, uh, and he was very artistically minded. He, he loved and appreciated art. He was, you know, but he was army through and through. You know, yeah. He was, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, my my father's resume is literally the all of the movies of the '80s dealing with Vietnam <laughs> veterans. It was like, you know, oh yeah, that's my unit. Oh yeah, that's that, oh, that that's my funny. unit. And, oh, oh, that's my unit. And then that's you know, and and it was just even um, platoon was my dad's unit. That's um, hilarious. Wow. And it's just like weird. Uh, so he was through thorough, thoroughly military. But never but did, did he talk with you about what you should be doing? Was there any... never? That okay. was another thing is neither of my parents really did, uh, except to say that they were very concerned that I wanted to go into arts. Okay. So much so, uh, you know, my sister, she went into psychology and she mm. was going to become a psychologist, but it was not her heart. She was doing it because she was the good kid. And I was the rebel. I was the kid oh. that was probably going to just end up, you know, doing theater and, you know, living in a van down by the river, the whole nine years, you know, I, I, I was lucky because my sister was a star, you know, everything she did was top notch. So I could, I could slide. I, I slid. That was my whole thing. Just slide, let her do all the hard work. I will do the things I love. Uh, but halfway through my sister's uh, college career, she was like, ah, screw this. I'm going to become an actress. And wow. you know, everybody's world turned upside down. <laughs> I was like, Oh no, do I have to now do something more legitimate? I, I'm worried now uh, that that you you've decided that that art was was more in her blood than anything else. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting because I think my dad, at the very least, he knew that my brain doesn't doesn't look at things the same way as everyone else. You know that that mm -hmm. that uh, my processing is different than everyone else. Uh, certainly not in military because I'm very very. My father's greatest like military advice is do what you're told, you know, um, and you'll succeed. Right. All you have to do is do right. what you're told. Right. You know, and that is an important thing. And, and, you know, in all seriousness, he was like, listen, you know, it's not about decision making. There's no decision to make. Which is why I, I got very mad. Uh, uh, so mad at the recruitment campaign that was called Army of One. Right. Because right. the Army of One campaign seemed to suggest it was about being an individual who 
makes these decisions and does these things. I'm like, that is a bad sales technique because it's the opposite. You're part of a group, which is also equally you know, important to note right, that, right. you know, there's a reason we're all wearing the same uniform. That's right. the reason why, right. you know, well, we all have the same haircut. There's a reason for that. And to suggest that you're, you're, you're joining the army for individuality and for, you know, to be this, this one person who makes all these decisions to say, like, no, someone far, far away from you makes decisions. And then it's up to everyone under that person <laughs> to carry those decisions out. Right. So it is just weird. And so, you know, that my, what my dad knew more than anything was, uh, I don't, I don't follow directions. Well, I don't, um, I don't pay attention. Well, I don't, you know, I'm not good at that functioning. That's not my, it's my key. <laughs> um, Sorry, I've seen you just act that way. That's fine. Yeah. There's a place for that. <laughs> oh, there are. Absolutely. There's always a place for it. You know, uh, it, it, and, and of course at the time there was no war, there was no threat of war. We weren't in the middle of anything. It was, you know, so it was one of those things where, you know, I had known people who joined the army, went down to Honduras and sat on a beach for a couple of years, right. came home and went to college. And that was, that was this, this thing. It's like, you know, it's just a job. It's like, you know, uh, 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 an after school job and you get it and then you go to college and, and everything will be great. Um, but I, uh, I joined right at uh, just cause and, uh, at Desert storm, like, right. Like literally my, 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 Boot camp was cut short so we could participate in Just Cause. And really? you know, I, I I got to run around in South America for something called Airbridge Denial, which I can't talk about. And then I went over to uh Desert Storm. And it was just like a, a series of like unfortunate timing, really, when it came down to it. Uh and all of a sudden, uh, as as I'm coming out of this whole whirlwind thing, my sister is deathly ill. And she had a brain tumor. And so, like in the midst of it all. There's like this family crisis brewing yeah, in in, yeah. in in the storms, and it was like this is so so very bizarre, because my life had been a very simple line, <laughs> yeah. and then it was this erratic, you know, ups and downs, and then uh, I immediately was able to get out of the army. Right then, at uh, at the end of Desert Storm, I was just like, I got family, I got to take care of, and they shipped me off and I went home because right after desert storm, um, the army was desperate to get rid of excess soldiers because they had taken so many on and it was really a budgetary crisis at the end of, um, that military yeah. action, yeah. uh, which I, I wish I could say is, is going to happen again, but because we've had such a prolonged military presence in the middle East, yeah. we've, we've never run into that issue again. You know, we are always needing soldiers now. Um, whereas after Desert Storm, I think there was this big sigh of relief of, right. okay, well, that's right. over. How do we maintain all these troops? How do we maintain this, Sure, you know, this fighting force when there's no one to fight? So um, let, let, oh, yeah. me, let me, I just want to slow down for one second, just because I, I don't want to gloss over your time in. Sure. Um, cause that does seem like such a 180 degree shift from, from <laughs> yeah, not, not, not just going from from where you were into the army, but also your expectations of what the army was supposed to be into what actually was. Um, did you go in as infantry? I I went in uh, as infantry, but my dad actually geared me to communications. And okay. he was like, look, and a lot of what, a lot of the idiosyncratic things that happened was uh, 
One was I'm colorblind, which I didn't learn until I joined the army. Yeah, you know, I didn't pass the colorblind Whoa. test, which which Whoa. which created kind of a funnel effect because I was going to go into MOPIC. I was going to go into the um, sort of the journalist arm of, okay. of the military. Yeah, but uh, they uh, being colorblind, they're like, well, you can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't do this, you can't do that. Uh, so uh, I found myself in a obscure communications uh, system that uh, was apparently just stupid dangerous. Uh, because it, it it involved a giant radio uh, tower, and when you key it, you light up any radar. And so that specific uh, rig was oftentimes used to draw enemy fire. You know, it's oftentimes used so that you key it up and then you just run because what you've done is you've told the enemy there's somebody there utilizing what must look like you know, a very yeah. sophisticated communications array, but really it's just a giant antenna that puts out stupid amounts of, uh, of, of energy to okay. transmit. So, uh, so, oh, so, yes. so what, so what I'm, I'm trying to get clear. so this seems like it's right out of stripes. They cut your basic short for you to go into just cause. I mean, did you, yes. so no way it, you hadn't done any MOS Specific oh no no training. no! Uh, it, it, that was all my truncation. The, the oh, whole okay. truncation okay. was was basic AIT. Get okay, out. got you. Know, you. It's all like right. there's something brewing. There's something going. Let's get, let, let's let's move. Let's move. Let's move. Let's move. Which is another thing is we were trained again in like 1940s radio tech. Right. Um, you know, we were in these rat rigs, and I was like, "Why are we using these things?" It's like because it's the easiest, quickest thing to get you from training to deployed. Got you. And so were were you with 82nd? Is that who you, you got assigned to? So no. Uh okay. we were out of Fort Belvoir and there was oh, not okay. a uh it's not a, a proper yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I ended up in first infantry, I'll just say that. Yep, I got you. <laughs> like, I got you. Yep. Like in in the in the in the long term, because it was like I said, it was a it was a it was a sieve effect. Yeah. Where would I fall after all of these things? And yeah, you know, it probably didn't hurt the paperwork to see that my father was a Green Beret, yeah. you know, 101st Airborne, and and his and his record because um, there was an interesting thing about my unit, and we were all the children of highly decorated Vietnam veterans. You know, we were all same same rough age, same rough, you know, um, even our, our our ethnicities were were very similar, and which raised a lot of questions. Really? Um, wow. And this is not a conversation I'm supposed to have anyway. So I got you. Yeah, yeah I got <laughs> just, you. Just, I got just, you. just for yeah, the, yeah. the 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 iteration of it was, we think that we were probably uh, just second generation. You know, we grew up in the military. You know, we grew up yeah. around the military, and and that felt like we had special privilege. But I, I know we didn't. But it certainly felt like people were quicker to say, "Well, they know what the army is." Versus people who just came off the street and, and had no concept of the army, yeah. um, which is always weird to me to think that there's a, a large civilian populace that has no idea yeah. that the army is a forever thing, a daily thing, a daily activity thing, a, uh, you know, that, you know, when we're not at war, it's still running it's and it's still, yeah, yeah. still has this huge force of people who live out their lives professionally and do all these professional things. They go to the motor pool every day who, you know, do yeah. all these things um, because it's not something that you imagine unless you're thinking of war. Right. And so, you know, uh, to take a bunch of people who don't know what the military is and then to find that, you know, a very small contingent of people all with the very same, 
you know, right down to like the same um, uh, military backgrounds of our parents in the same unit felt pointed. Yeah. So uh, this is beyond interesting, especially considering where your career ends up going. Right. But what, how were you processing all this? How were you processing suddenly being in a combat zone when Americans hadn't been in combat? Well, I guess it's Grenada, but properly yeah. since Vietnam. I mean, how, how were you processing all this? Were you, was there an asshole puckering? Holy shit. Uh, um, this is just, just got real. Were you excited? Were you kind of shrugging your shoulders at it? How did so, you feel about all of it? That's, I always say that the army does this amazing thing in, in the training and in the indoctrination period of it that uh, really helps create a sensation of purpose. Mm -hmm. And so aside from fear, which I think is a, a, a natural aspect, there was definitely excitement. Um, and it was an excitement that seemed to stem from the ability to fulfill a purpose, the purpose that was assigned to me and guaranteed to me, you know, a purpose that was, you know, uh, heretofore unexplored. Um, and, and you lose a lot of that private sensibility, the, the private citizen sensibility. Mm. You, you are like, um, everything made sense, which was weird because it didn't, but it did, you know, uh, I always try to liken it's like, imagine trying to train someone for chaos, trying to tell somebody that they're about to go into absolute chaos. And one of the ways you do that is by creating such huge mandates on mundane, you know, behavior, the more mundane your routine is, the more adept to chaos you are and it seems counterindicative but it's true if polishing your boots becomes a part of your existence then people shooting at you at some point becomes just this thing that you were prepping for you can make you order know, out of chaos you can you make think? order out of chaos because yeah. you have you have come down to the very minute details of your life yep and that means if I need to, and this, it's funny, uh, for years after I got out of the army, I still polished my combat boots. I would still sit and just polish in the, in, in the evening sometime. And it would, it would, it, it would dissolve some anxieties and some huh. angsty moments just because that act was fulfilling a purpose. <laughs> you know, it was, it was hearkening to an idea that there was purpose at one time. There's a purpose to shine your boots. Uh, which seems ludicrous while it's happening, which seems ludicrous when you talk about it. But then one day when you're feeling like you're not present or you're not able to, you know, uh, make sense of something, just that simple act of polishing your boots made me feel at the very least like I was, uh, that I, I, I found a line to normal, you know, a line yeah. to normalcy. Yeah. And it's uh, and I have terrible ADHD on top of everything else, which wasn't really a thing, right. uh, you know, right. uh, at that time. Uh, so I was very bad at task management, especially out of the army when there wasn't someone yelling at me, right? It, because 
Another thing about the army is if you have ADHD or ADHD, having someone tell you what time to wake up, what time to do things, what, how, how clean something was supposed to be, you know, uh, regimenting all those things, and you just have to agree to it. You know, again, don't think, do, uh, which again might might have informed my writing style. Don't think, do. Don't think, just you know, commit to the task at hand. Um, and so you weren't finding that this kind of let's not maybe maybe anti-authoritarian is too strong a term, but um, the inability to listen, all the things your dad was worried about, right? That doesn't seem like it was necessarily that much of a factor when it. When well, were- unfortunately, there are points at which that type of outward behavior can become useful strategically. Sure, you know it, sure. it, it makes a lot of sense to have people who can be kind of. Uh, out of the mold if you need them to be. But in the end, I think what my father was really concerned with was my inability to conform. But in combat situation, conformity is not always the the priority. Right. right. You know, and 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 so it comes back to that, do what you're told. You know, as long as you do what you're told, it will come to pass. You know, you'll get through the night if you do what you're told kind of situation. So it, uh, it sounds to me like there's a li- so I'm, I'm I know we're talking around the edges a little bit. And sure. I think that's probably smart, um, but I want to make sure I'm clear on this. Uh, it seems like there's the disconnect between the strategic. You're doing what you're told, but tactically, you're having to make a lot of independent decisions. That's right? it. Yeah, that's absolutely it. So, so uh, because like I was saying with the army of one situation, it's we, if you keep the task at hand and complete it, because that's what you're told, where you're told is to do this thing. The confines of which is about, because it's all go or no go. It's all pass yeah. or fail. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and once you can accept that and sometimes you have to do that throughout life is, is decide whether something's go or no go, whether, whether it's a, um, whether the tax gets achieved or not, not I'll, I'll chip away at it. I'll, yeah. you know, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll halfway get there. I'll, I'll do my best. It's like, no, if you fail, you fail. And then you have to do something else. <laughs> you have yeah. to, because yeah. you see a lot of people who spend their lives kind of spinning their wheels on the notion that they're going to get to something. And it's like, you should have taken this as a pass or fail situation, that go or no go situation, because you're wasting valuable time attempting something that either your heart's not in or your skills aren't up to. Yeah. And, 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 you know, for people who've been in the military, if your skills are not up to it, you fail. And then you have to address the failure, not the continued attempt. Right. You know, right. Uh, that become that's such an, uh, an important thing that I think people need to learn is that the continued attempt of something you're failing at is not the correct action. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, right. it may involve going back to training. It may involve augmenting the training. But you have to accept that the task is done and gone. Yeah. You've missed that window. And you need to reassess and 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 reapproach and do even if it's the same task, it has to be a new venture of the task. You know, it has yeah. to be a new attempt at it, not the continued attempt 
and I, I, you know, it's, it's fascinating to think that those are the kinds of lessons that you learn. Yeah. Is that, you know, um, it makes you a more pragmatic artist, does it not? Absolutely. Because yeah. art is, is very rarely pragmatic. Right. But, but to be able to, again, the let go motion, yeah. uh, lots of artists are so precious about their creations that they can't fathom the moment that they put it into somebody else's hands or they can't fathom the moment that a reviewer says, I didn't like it. You know, <laughs> they can't, they can't take it. And a part of that is because they, they refuse to, uh, to see the, to, to see where that assignment ended, where that task ended, where the check mark was. Yeah. It's like, when, when did you pass? When did you fail? I always say the moment I'm, I, I, I'm done writing. Like the moment the, the script is done, that's the task. I did it. Yeah. The, the script yeah. is done. Yeah. I, I will not treat this script with any more regard than the body of work that it is. That way I can hand it to someone else or I can put it out there in the world and I won't have to be defensive about it. I won't have to you know argue about it. It doesn't, it, my job was playwright, play written. Yep. There yep. you go. Poet. Poetry written, you know, right, right. That way, the relationship is complete for me. I find my satisfaction. My satisfaction isn't a paycheck. My satisfaction isn't somebody else loving it. I've had, you know, none of that plays into my function as a writer. Um, But I think, yes, sorry, go. No, no, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, I think that, um, that art kind of has to end somewhere because you can always work. You can always yeah. tinker. You can always, you know, I, I, somebody once asked me, when are you, when, when do you know a script is done? And I'm like, well, it, it's done when you can let someone else look at it. You know, so you can let somebody else yeah. have it. Yeah. Because I, honestly, I could write and rewrite and keep writing and keep tinkering and keep hammering and, and get my way or uh, you know, wherever. Well, there's an adult indulgence as well, right? I think yes. that's one of the things that's come to my mind is I'm thinking the difference in the pipelines between people that are steeped in art and never get out of that pipeline and those coming from uh, you know, the military, which these are not equally prolific groups of people that go to the arts, let's be clear. But but I, do, I, I, I can see that if you're coming up through school, grad school as an artist, you become so precious about your work. There is so much that sunken costs and sunken emotional, you know, ripping away the artifice to get to the emotional truth type thing that you are trained to be precious about your work. Whereas coming from the military where nobody gives a fuck about what you're thinking, you're just so grateful that anybody wants to hear anything you've put on paper, whether or not it's the soul piercing truth or whether it's just like, Hey, I whipped this up this morning in my underwear, whatever. You're just glad to get your voice out in any way, shape or form. And it does make you much more low maintenance and much more, I think, effective in a lot of respects as an artist. Oh, absolutely. And it's all about, you know, executing orders, you know, being sure that, because one thing I love about veteran arts organizations and and veteran artists is that nine times out of 10, they have something specific to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because they have an experience that is very narrow in public experience like not many people know this 
and and thereby not many people have the the ability to look at any situation with the same kind of lens yeah and so to have people take a picture with that you know with that lens and present it you oftentimes will see and and usually again and again thematically you see what they're really saying is a, a pretty uh damning uh, uh, notion of the artifice of our daily life. You know, it's like people behave as if life and death things are going on all the time. Sure. You know, sure. Uh, people in offices are, 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 you know, struggling with the stress of, yeah. of getting yeah. reports in on time and doing this on time and yeah. doing these things. And it's like, I don't think, you know, that there is uh, huge populations of the planet whose life and death struggles yeah. are life and death, that their decisions are weighed, their successes are weighed by how many people are harmed or how many people are not harmed. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think veterans have a keen observation on that notion of how artificial our, uh, our self-importance yeah, ideas. Well, it, what's interesting? I while you were saying that, I was thinking I don't know anyone, and I'm not saying I know everyone, but I don't know any veteran artist that is struggling to figure out what to say. Right, they struggle with a lot of things, but yes. not as far as what to say, and yes. that, and so there's a, that that clarity of purpose, and then satisfaction that even if you haven't put it out. A hundred percent, exactly in a soul-piercing way. It's you, you've been able to say something, and you'll probably tackle that same subject matter the rest of your life. Absolutely, tackling all these different mediums, so you're gonna get a lot of bites of that apple in one way or another. And I think that's a really that's a really interesting and insightful uh, point that you're making. I want to ask about your your military career. Sure. Were you satisfied? Were you happy with it? Oh God, no. <laughs> what was your what, what, if you well, had to sum it up what what would you say was it disappointing was it depressing so, what'd you think in so many ways I, my dad was right it, it it wasn't me you know and and what really happened more than anything else was it took me a it, it took a i was only in for three years you know i just did you know the very basic two combat deployments in three years yeah yeah uh, but yeah. in that time and because of that, I had about a 10-year window of not being the person I wanted to be, you know, of, of taking – it was a decision that put me on a path of not being who I wanted to be. And it lasted – and, you know, 10 years before I started on a path, another 10 years before I felt like I was – living up to a potential that I had when I was 17. You know, it, it, it was such a bizarre time uh, because coming back to the civilian world, lots of things seemed trivial. I stopped the pursuit of what I wanted to do and just became obsessed with not doing anything I didn't want to do. They're not the same thing. Avoiding something is not the same as going towards something. 
And I spent so long just avoiding being uncomfortable, <laughs> being pressed upon, being put in situations that I had no control over or no uh, no say in. I found myself consistently saying, I will never take a job that I dreaded going to. You know, um, and I became a puppeteer. That was that was cool. Uh, so I was a puppeteer, which was a job that I loved doing, and it was a great job. But it was one of those weird things where I was doing it almost solely to avoid sitting in a cubicle or doing some grueling work that didn't fulfill me. Uh, I, I found myself drawn away from anything that seemed like structure. Um, wow. And I piecemealed a, a career, you know, like I said, you know, I, I was doing shows and I was doing things like that. But for the longest time, it was more out of avoidance than it was out of embracing. You know, I found myself avoiding structure instead of embracing the art. Considering, so, considering the path that it ended up taking you down, how did that hurt you, though? What would you have done had you been completely, let's call it, self-realized in those moments? Like, are, are you like, so, oh, I really missed some opportunities? <laughs> I, I missed many opportunities uh, okay. because I, I wallowed. I would have wallowed less. That would be my uh, <laughs> my one wish because it's all me. It's not anything else. It was it was me kind of wallowing you know uh, but what i would have done differently was i would have pursued connection uh very much what i'm doing here right now uh sending things out you know i i don't enter contests i don't you know send things off i you know um yeah. it was by sheer happenstance that uh your contest came across my purview uh, and it was one of those things where i don't i don't spend any time thinking i'm a veteran uh, yeah. But at that moment, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm a veteran. Oh, I'm, a veteran. <laughs> I'm a playwright. I have some plays. And uh, like I said, I, I, I even have like a play roughly construed around some of my military experience. And I have a play that is that is far more dreary and dark. Uh, and I was thinking of those plays. And I was like, I don't want to be the veteran who cashes in on being a veteran. Sure. You know, I don't I, sure. I, I, I don't know that that's that's in my at least not here and now and, and certainly you know wanting to present myself as a writer and i was like you know i have kind of a family comedy and i'm proud of it i'm proud of of, of that that play because it's it's a light-hearted thing you know yeah. ultimately yeah. Uh, and i find that um artists oftentimes are drawn to to take the the very pointed parts of their observations and kind of shove them into other people's eyes. Right. Right. So I, I was like, and I have plenty of those that I can, you know, whip out at any time, but I felt that maybe I should tread the waters of connection by showing that I'm not, you know, um, that I don't have a point, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not yeah. trying to, I'm not trying to, to make a point. Right. Uh, and then, you know, that really does m make a difference. Cause I, I, I keep thinking if I went back, cause like I, I used the GI bill to go to college, but it was a very low key experience. And, um, and my sister, she had a brain tumor. And so when they took the brain tumor out, she was epileptic. So I was basically oh, her driver. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, she couldn't drive anywhere, uh, couldn't go anywhere. So um, I spent a lot of that quick out, out of the army time kind of 
uh, and I won't say take care of her because she's fierce. She, she's a fierce woman. But, uh, you know, being there and uh, and and I just fell into patterns of, of life uh, that, you know, um, were unhealthy, too. I, I would eat better. That's what I would do. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, yeah, I would yeah, treat yeah. my body better uh, because uh, that was another thing. I was like, I, was, I will never run again. You can never make me run again. Nothing. You know, you can you can release a bear and I'll just let it eat me because I will never run again. Uh, but now looking back, I was like, no, I could have run a few more times. <laughs> so when you started, so you went to college and was your degree in theater? Was it in the arts? So, what were you trying so to do? interestingly enough, uh, I went to Armstrong, which is here in Savannah. And it was it was a placeholder. I was actually wanting to go to film school, okay. uh, but my sister not being able to move about much, and my father was uh, still actually he was in Saudi Arabia at the time. Um, we so just staying close by. I was just taking classes, filling out, and so I I went into the theater program, and I went into uh, I majored in philosophy. Um, the dean calls me into his office and he's like, we don't actually have a philosophy major um, and we don't actually have a theater major. So we're going to give you a communications degree. And I was like, and it wasn't nearly as much as a surprise because the whole time I was at college, they were like, next year we're going to instill this, you know, bachelor of science in philosophy or bachelor of science in, or bachelor of arts in, in theater. Don't worry. It's coming. And so I kept going, you know, year after year. They're like, don't worry, next year, next year, next year, senior year. They're like, we didn't get it, but we can give you a communications degree. Oh my! Lord. And I was like, great. And it was like, it'll say emphasis in theater and philosophy. And I was like, great. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so glad that, but, that the emphasis you... of my communication skills will be philosophy <laughs> and theater. <laughs> What, but what did you think? I mean, you're going into a line of work, though, or you're aiming for a line of work where a uh, degree isn't necessarily crucial, right? No. I mean, or no, what did you th or was it just that, hey, I missed out a chance to actually learn skills and to actually. No, actually, it was um, my sister was going to college and I was driving her every day and I had the GI Bill. <laughs> OK, OK. <laughs> that was literally it. That was literally my my thinking was, well, if, if somebody's going to pay for it, I might as well go. Yeah. So then where, what did you think? I mean, clearly going for a film degree, you were trying to get into film. Like you thought that was the yes. career path. Right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I, I am in film now. I make short films. I just made a feature like this past summer. Um, we are talking about shooting a series this coming year. So, um, so film has always stayed in and, and I've written screenplays for numerous production companies. Right. Throughout the years, so but, but let's talk about that. So, I mean, did you leave Savannah to do this, or nope. was this all Savannah based? Wow. It was all well. And That's what awesome. was interesting was like how I got into screenwriting was I had a friend who was an extra. I didn't even say extra. I just a background character, and even that is a, a stretch. But he was he was background on Star Trek: The Next Generation, the television okay. show, and he was desperate to break into acting. He was desperate. He was like, I'm on a, a, you know, a top syndicated show. I'm, you know, and so he was very excited about it. So he would pay me to write small story arcs for his character 
who was just this background guy <laughs> in, the, in the Star Trek show. So he would pay me and he would take these papers to the writing room. And of course, nothing would ever come of it. But that relationship that I had with him kind of stuck because when he he was a wheeler dealer, uh, it turns out he was a terrible actor. Uh, but he was always trying to get things done. So he would mm-hmm. talk to people. He talked to a producer. And he's like, I got a friend. He's a writer. He's an incredible writer. So he's like my hype man. Jeez. And then he'd be like, oh, hey, I told that guy that you had a script about, you know, uh, a, a man who who shot the president and he's he's, he's in hiding. I said, like, I don't have a script like that. Oh, well, they want it by Monday. No, just type it up. Uh, so so that was kind of my career was started by producers who really wanted scripts in short times. I became a ghostwriter where uh, several of my scripts have made it into um production under somebody else's name and then i became script doctor which i would just kind of punch up scripts and and that became a long relationship with with you know two or three different companies um and then were they all were they all local companies though no no these were all they're uh, in la or they're well one was in la um two were in germany oh wow and so i worked with uh i worked with this guy uli lamel um, and he, you know, fly me out to Germany and I'd work with him and we, we, we banter and his sweetest guy, I was sitting in his, his apartment, this little apartment in Germany, Munich. And, uh, we're just talking and I, I look over and there's a, a stack of Polaroids on the end table. And I'm like, oh, so I pick up the Polaroids, it's a stack of Polaroids and it's, uh, pictures of Andy Warhol and Muhammad Ali and Andy Warhol taking pictures of Muhammad Ali. And I'm like, what is this? And so I'm like, what's this? And he's like, oh, that's Andy. You know, I, I used to work for Andy and we were such good friends. And we were, uh, it turns out that he was one of Andy Warhol's music. Factory people. Uh, and he was a factory person. And he he did a lot of Andy Warhol's filming. Um, and so he he like points to the back of the couch. And I look back there and there are like 20 original Andy Warhol uh, pieces of art behind the couch, just shoved behind the couch he's like i'm going to open a museum one day and i'm like oh my god what but yeah yeah uh fascinating guy sweet as can be bizarre but but yeah how were you but how were you meeting these guys was all through that one point of contact that was a dealer or how did that because i mean i I think a lot of people are gonna be here uh, listening to this going wait how the fuck can i get into the business so this is the beauty of, of of my life like I said, I don't pursue things. They just kind of fall into my path. And the way that those two Germans fell into my path, one German, his name was Rudiger, was making a film uh, in Savannah. And so he was going to make this film in Savannah. They called me out to audition, to act in it. And I was like, okay. In my audition, Rudiger takes a huge like to me. Oh, this is worth mentioning, bizarre enough. I am a six foot four, uh, very wide Asian man. Um, German producers really like to have very large men around them. You know, they just want somebody huge next to them. Uh, and I, I, that probably sounds really racist or something, but it's just something that I've noted that, that the European bloc nations, I've worked for a lot of them. And I, I swear, the only thing I've got going is that I'm huge, you know, is that I'm a big man. I can't because they take to me quickly. They don't really know. The guy, Rudiger, from my audition was like, I want you to write my script. And I'm like, I didn't even tell you I was a writer. You know, I didn't even, I didn't even mention that. 
Jesus. And so, you know, wow. he flies me out to Munich and we we, we go. And anyway, Uli uh, apparently is a big celebrity in Germany. Uh, and so Rüger was like trying to get Uli involved in this movie to help up the uh, the value of it. And so Uli came on as a producer and that's how I met Uli. So I, I can, but all I can my, hear all my stories are like that. Well, no, well, I mean, I can hear just forehead smacking against walls out there as people <laughs> listen to this and go, son of a bitch. That's fucking ridiculous. There's no way I can duplicate that. Um, yeah. No, I, but I, I, that was the thing. Connection. Yeah. It's about connection. connecting. Yeah. Go out and talk to people. Go out to talk to go to your local theaters. Go to your local. Every city has filmmakers of any level of success. Meet them, talk well, to them, and, and that's what, what you seem, do. It, it seems like to me. I mean, it's been a benefit for you to be in Savannah, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's so bizarre because I, I I imagined that I would be here for a couple of years. You know, until my sister leveled out, and and then I'll, choo, I was going to be gone. Yeah. But uh, the thing about Savannah is, it's so easy to live here. You know, it's it, low cost of living, high art potential, and they let you fail in Savannah without rubbing your face in it. You know, you can you can attempt things, and if it doesn't work out, no one's like holding it over your head. So you know that that put me because I've owned, gosh, five theater companies in the Jeez. last twenty plus years. Um, the last two, uh, the my improv comedy team, we ten years of of running uh, ended with the pandemic. Really, we just had to give up our space. Um, and then Savannah Shakes, which is a Shakespeare company that we we produced uh, 10 shows before the pandemic shut us down <laughs> uh, but we're oh. probably going to come back to both of those uh in the coming year uh and that kind of is the thing you can try things here and that is huge you and know? the audience is there for it there's enough of an audience that they'll there show is an up audience. and appreciate it yeah. there is an audience for it they do appreciate it um and what's interesting is it's it's kind of a small knit very dedicated audience so like there are five four or five theater companies in 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 savannah only one professional uh one equity house but the the rest of them are you know very uh heartfelt community theaters uh they all um buy with the same audience so you kind of have to stagger your seat <laughs> to make sure that you're not producing on the same weekend as wow. everybody else wow interesting so how did improv come about for you? And I'm saying this is somebody that just loved improv. And even, I don't know, over the last 20 years, I still somehow managed to make time for improv. I just, I, I've always loved it as an inherently creative art form that actors That's never amazing. get to do. You never get to be inherently creative. You're always interpreting somebody's work, right? Right. And, yeah. and I th- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my own thing only because I've never said it on the show and I'll bore you with this and then I'll, I'll get out of the way. But I saw the the seminal moment for me was in 2004 at Improv Olympic in L.A. when I saw um, Scott Adsit from 30 Rock and Dave Pasquese do – they did um, Adsit and Pasquese, they were called. And they just went up on stage and they did an hour-long, long-form show um, with no suggestion. They just walked out on stage and they said, this is – we're making all this up. And – then they just started creating. And I will never forget that first scene where Dave Pasquese was just standing there alone on stage. Scott Adds just walked right off stage and Dave Pasquese just stood there staring out into space and organically over the next eight or so minutes, you started to realize he was in an art gallery looking at a painting 
and Scott adds it, then kind of peeks his way in and becomes like the very fussy, um, you know, whatever uh, uh, security or whatever, right. trying to keep him from, docent, from yeah. the painting or docent or something. Yeah. And, and it becomes this, and, it, and it, but I was blown away because I was so used to the fast, you know, quick improv right. and like improv right, right, games right. and all that. And I was like, oh my God, this organic, very theatrical way of taking it slow. After that, I was like, I had already been doing improv for off and on for like five years. I, I loved it, but that blew me away. And I was like, I will never shake that. And it's funny because tomorrow night I'm actually going to go see Dave Pasquese in the New York uh, with uh, uh, TJ. Um, God, fuck's his name? I always forget his last name. Anyway, but it's been uh, he does the same thing with uh, this other guy, and they're fucking great. And I, last time I saw him was a decade ago, so it's just kind of ironic that they are actually. I'm actually going to go see them tomorrow. But so that's been my improv journey. So I'm a huge improv fan. Yeah. That doesn't just fall into your lap. How did you? How did that all happen? I mean, what, <laughs> well, so what did that look like for you? I've always been, like I said, a fan of improv. Uh, you know, introduced to it like in high school in acting, utilizing it as you know the um, a way to break into character and to to manipulate. You know, and 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 of course it was like Uta Hagen and Spoilin and mm-hmm. you know uh, serious tools for the actor. Um, so uh, when I got out of the army. Um, there was, you know, whose line is in anyway? Yep. Uh, yep. Know, radio broadcast and the British um, show was kind of rising in popularity and it was it was all yeah. around and um and Clive Anderson the, version, not the not the Clive the Anderson version. version. Yes, yeah, not yeah, the yeah. Right, version. Right. So we found ourselves, you know, uh, just kind of uh, toying with it and we we played with it a few times. But uh, what really happened was the local acting pool pretty tight, and we found ourselves. Um, after my child was born, not having a lot of time to devote to shows because shows, you know, in the community theater sitting, you're after work, you show up and it's like a five to six week period of rehearsing every night uh, because you don't have like eight hour days to, sure, to do anything. Sure. Um, and we just realized that we weren't going to be able to uh, to be a part of shows as much. And I was like, well, well, what if we did improv? What if we did shows that didn't require all that prep time? You know, we, we, we would get our, our, you know, acting hit because we're obviously addicted to it. Um, I love the pragmatism. All this is right, pragmatism. pragmatism. It was yeah. literally, we need to, to have something that doesn't require weeks and weeks of our time. Uh, we'll just meet every, and we, and we started just doing it on Monday nights because it was the, the dark night of theaters. Um, and so Monday night being dark, perfect night to do. And it was it was more like a get together. It was more like, hey, let's hang out, let's do this, and 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 for our own satisfaction. Um, and it slowly snowballed into something that had a, a, an audience and a fan base, and and ultimately we ended up getting our own theater over a coffee shop, and you know, just it, it, everything happened organically, you know. And and it was yeah. it was mostly because we loved each other's company, yeah. and because we enjoyed the the performance aspect of it. And so we find ourselves, you know. Uh, Technically, it's uh, it was uh, it started in 2009. Oh, we called ourselves the Literary Improv League, where we would basically improv our way through famous books. So, like Moby Dick and Treasure Island and Great Gatsby, we would uh-huh. sort of do a Reader's Digest version on the stage with you know improv games like kind of stuck in there here and there. And then we we're like, you know, it's getting too hard because 
everybody wanted to research the book. So it became like a book club more than an improv troupe. And it was like, let's just do improv every Monday. And so we, we, we were doing improv every Monday for, for a good long time. Um, well, I mean, then, ten, 10 years, right? 10, ten years. years. Well, uh, as we, when we got our own space, we started doing, um, we started off with five shows a week and then we kind Jesus. of brought it down to three shows a week. Um, and then we ran that three shows a week for a while, but yeah, 10 years of, of, you know, a self-sufficient, yeah, you know, improv company. What, who did you find yourself aligning with? Is it a professional theater community that you're all like, cause I'm trying to think of what is the motivating factor, you know, in this, in New York, LA, everybody's trying to make it. So everybody's down for the cause. What yeah, drives but, people in, in a smaller town? Are they, are so they in a smaller town? No, okay. <laughs> it's yeah. not, it's not the career. It's the fulfillment. Okay. It is, you know, and people give their all, you know, it is amazing to see the kinds of productions mm-hmm. that go on here because people are putting it all on the lines. And these are people again, who are doing their nine to five job and then, you know, coming out afterwards. And we do have uh, one equity house here, Savannah rep, which brings down actors from New York and, 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 and does a really tight rehearsal schedule and, and hires enough locals so that, locals are standing shoulder to shoulder with, you know, professionals right, and, right. and that, and that creates this amazing camaraderie and, and, you know, an excitement for the audience as well. Sure. Um, but in the end, I think it is because we understand. And for anybody who's out there in, in, in a city or a town that doesn't have a thriving theater scene or, or you feel like it's impossible, um, know that ultimately no matter where anyone lives, Theater is both a voice and a place for listening. If there isn't a theater in your town, make one. Go to a coffee shop, do a two-person show, find a space. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not, is there an audience? It's, how do I reach them? Mm. And the first step of that is giving them something to go to. Because there is no place on earth that doesn't benefit from theater. There is no condition that is um, exclusive. You know, everything is represented in theater. And and always keep that in mind, too, because even if you can't uh, find the play to do, sit down and write it. You know, sit yeah, down and yeah. and make it. Yeah. Um, the only thing that can happen is it doesn't work out. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out. I mean, you're not going to go to jail. You're not going to kill over dead. Right. Right. Uh, but the best thing that can happen is you start a revolution. You 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 bring people about who maybe some of them didn't even know, you know, that theater was essential. But theater is essential. Art is essential. And too many communities forget that. And the way they forget that is it's not around. So that's my, my, my take is it's not about finding a cause or, or championing a cause. It's about knowing that the human condition is stale without art. And theater is one of the most tangible living arts available. So the glib the glib retort, I think, to that that I hear in my own head, but it sometimes is 
is verbalized by people in one way, shape, or form is bitching. Art is awesome. That's why God invented Hulu. And I can sit there in my underwear. And and I so up here um, in Cornwall, you know, we've started, uh, you know, we're based out of. We have our parlor space that happened basically because we rented too much space. And we were like, yeah, let's just start doing some shows here and all that. And it's worked out. And it's great because there's no professional theater in the whole county. Right. But we are about an hour out of, outside the city. So it's easy for us to cast, you know, professional actors, bring them up here. We put them in this 16-seat you know, parlor and it's a blast and we do it every Saturday night and they're established plays, but it's really just us having a good time, but it is definitely a learning curve um, to get people to come out. And again, these are people that are within the radius of New York city, but even then the inertia that pushes back against live performance and getting your butt in a seat is sometimes significant. And there are a lot of guys. I know a lot of guys, a lot of vets, that are like, yeah, dude, I'm not going to theater. Uh, theater is not my thing. And I'm like, it's a medium. Like, it depends what you're seeing. Like, I get it. Um, you know, I'm not the kind of person that's going to rush out and see kinky boots. Just not my thing. And if that's what you're thinking that all theater has to be like, then got it. I, I see why that might turn you off, but it's a medium. Sylvia Plath was not the only poet. And now you have a veteran poetry community that's like exploding because veterans are going, shit, this is a really cool art form. Like it's the same thing with theater. You can write anything in there, but the act of getting into a physical space and sitting and watching a show is a bit of a, a, a hill. It doesn't seem like you've had to climb that mountain as much though. In your, I, I, yeah. uh, we, 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 pl- we played to audiences of five, you know, we, okay. we, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. definitely had those moments. And, and ultimately, I mean, we have a standing rule that um, the, the audience has to outnumber the cast in order for us to go on. You know, we, we, so we've, we, we've had that. So we, we definitely go through lean times. Um, yeah. Like I said, the worst thing that happens is you fail. Right. And that becomes right. like this, this thing where people actually think that that is the worst thing that can happen to them at all. Right. Right. And you're like, no, 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 no. You're, you're misreading what I'm saying. When I say the worst thing that happens is you fail. Failing is nothing. Failing is fine. There's nothing wrong with failure. We have been conditioned to think that failure means death. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not true, you know, and yeah, you, you get out and you put yourself out of the line and I'm not saying theater is easy by any stretch of the right, imagination. Right. And I'm not saying standing in front of people and, and saying lines is easy, but what I am saying is it is essential. Yeah. Yeah. And it is only by presenting it that it ever will get anywhere. Yeah. So be prepared to fall on your face. Be prepared to look like a fool. You know, um, you, you can't be afraid of looking like a fool. That's uh, acting 101, improv 101. Yeah, yeah. The sure. only true way to look like a fool is by fearing looking like a fool. You know, if you don't, if you don't invest fully in the action, you suddenly look foolish. Mm-hmm. But if you do a foolish thing 100%, People are like, you should be paid to do that. You know. Well, I think that's that is that's a big. Um, I think there's a couple of differences too. Uh, I think when we're paying people, then as a pr- good producer, it's putting that producer hat on and going, "What's gonna your know, ROI does become a thing, and is this really? Oh, yes, the best use of resources, but." Yeah, I mean, look, we've, I mean, we've been blessed. We didn't set the bar very high because it's 
a whopping 16 seats in the house and it's always sold out. We we knew what we were doing. We were like, we're setting ourselves up for success here. But I, I will not forget July 4th weekend when it was a Saturday. It was July 2nd. We had 16 seats sold, but because it's pay what you can tickets, only four people showed up. And I was like, oh, okay, we're not doing that again. So it's interesting. So you do learn those lessons, but yeah, it is. Um, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, uh, it is crucial and it is important for people to be out there and it's important for people to see the benefit of live performance. That is incredibly important, I think. So, yeah. um, listen, dude, I have taken up a bunch of your time, but Chris, <laughs> tell everybody where they can find you, how they can follow you, what they should do to just kind of keep tabs on you, your work. And if they're in Savannah, God forbid, they can see a show. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, so uh, my improv company is called Odd Lot Improv. Um, you can find us right now on Facebook. We actually decommissioned our website, but we're we're kicking it back up. So look for Odd Lot Improv. Uh, we are um, we're looking at reestablishing Savannah Shakes next year. So Savannah Shakes, uh, which is a Shakespeare company. Um, I have a podcast called The Most Haunted City on Earth, where I talk about ghosts because I'm a huge ghost enthusiast. <laughs> Yes. And um, let's see. Uh, you can find me by looking looking me up, uh, you're, Christopher Susi S O U C Y, and you'll 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 see my name around. I I I'd be bop about. You're on Instagram, right? I am. I'm Susi Writer on Instagram, but I'm also Susi Man, Susi Man or Susi Writer. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, dude. Uh, this was a blast. Let's um to be continued. I I can't wait to talk again. Um, on or offline um, about any number of things, but this was really fun, man. I, yeah, I really absolutely. Enjoyed the shit out of this, and um, let's talk soon. Yeah, my pleasure. That was the savage wonder of Chris Susie. Um, I, you're going to hear a lot more about him from me or from nobody else, but uh, you know, I think he's a very promising writer, and and you know, certainly uh, not as new a voice. To me, as he's been to others, um, but I think there's I think there's so much stuff that he's going to continue to do and develop. Um, I'm very excited to see what happens with him and where his career goes from here. So check the show notes, give him a follow. You know, um, all the links that he gave and all that stuff. Like, definitely uh, keep tabs on him. He's he's going to have an interesting interesting future. Okay, uh, there is. Very little, I have to say, on behalf of VetRep right now, except, as always, if you have not subscribed to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog, which also doubles as our mailing list, go ahead and do so. <clears throat> you know, we um, we don't spam you. I stumble and hesitate when I say that because, yes, we do send you an email every day, but it's always at the same time. It always is just featuring another piece of veteran writing. And, uh, and then we put some shameless plugs beneath that. But it's a great way to stay on top of what's going on with us. Obviously, we are entering kind of a fallow period because we're generally dark for live performances from mid-December through the end of March, which is a really important time for us because we're not just resetting, reloading, but we're also um, developing a whole lot of stuff. So it's just not a lot of public-facing lines of effort that are going on, but a lot of stuff is happening. Uh, for us, um, that keeps us very, very busy. Um, but all that is to say that, you know, I don't have a ton of things to plug at the moment, but please subscribe to the blog. You can go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. 
go to our Now Playing tab. Again, that's Now Playing, and you will see the option to see our literary blog, subscribe to the literary blog. You can go directly to it. It's on Substack. You can go to savagewonder.substack.com. So for those of you that know Substack, by all means, go there and look for Savage Wonder. But give us a follow on there. I think you'll find really good, strong veteran writers that we're featuring every single day. And then, of course, you're in the loop for any and all of our lines of effort when they occur. I need to thank Mike Neal, our producer. And I think that's it, right? Yeah. On behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. See you next time for another Veterans Savage Wonder. <laughs>